It was incredible, actually. We'd had this amazing vacation. And on our drive home, we didn't turn on the radio at all the entire journey. And as we're driving out of Kelowna and on the highway, we're talking about dreams and vision for our lives. We're talking about our kids. We're talking about each other. We're talking about our marriage. We're, it's like deep and rich and good. It was the best of conversations until we hit Chilliwack <laughs> when suddenly erupted from us the most spectacular argument, one of the, the best we've ever had while, while driving anywhere ever. And I'm thinking it was the best and worst all in the same car ride. And we were stuck in the car, right? Uh. It was terrible. That, that drive from Chilliwack to, to home was really long. It was the longest hour of my life, I think. I like, I like what Max Lakota says. He says, conflict is inevitable. Combat is optional. Think about that. Conflict is inevitable in every relational context we are living in, whether you are sharing a room with others as students, you're working with different teams, whether it's in your work, school, or church, whether it's in your marriage, uh, whether it's in parenting, or in your family life. Conflict doesn't mean that you are in a bad relationship. With the right tools, resolving conflict can strengthen the relationship. Devin and my, our relationship, uh, before marriage, uh, two years, Man, we argued like cats and dogs. Uh, so much so, one day we actually had to pull over in Highway 401 and just chill. Uh, and um, That's an understatement. <laughs> I guess we are passionate people. And we were arguing about God that particular yeah, time. We, we, like... we had to even work out our theology. And um, we had lots of arguments. And then we got married, and for two years, there was no arguments. I guess we ironed out a lot of our differences before. But then, in reality, conflict became part of our regular lives. And um, it, it's our regular experience. And after kids, you know, when they were young, kids were young, we had lots of it. Uh, and then they were teenagers, even more. And now they are young adults. They are very different type of conflicts. It's, uh, the truth is, conflict can be constructive. Uh, Jan Hart, uh, she spoke on Wednesday in our courtyard here on parenting, and she said conflict is normal. In fact, if you are doing parenting right, she said you should have conflict. But we all know and have experienced how destructive conflict can be. Why does uh, conflict uh, seem to be inevitable? There's all kinds of reasons. Some of it has to do that we, we grow up in different backgrounds, uh, cultures, uh, families of origin are very different, our upbringing, our personalities. Uh, we come, come at things from different perspectives. Uh, we have different values and priorities. But some of the most significant conflict that, that we're going to encounter with each other isn't going to be explained away by our, our differences. This conflict comes out of our brokenness, out of, out of our, our blind spots, out of our love of self and our <laughs> incapacity sometimes to love others well. This is what James says in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
which means addressing that kind of conflict is going to require a, a, a deep work in us. It's going to require God's grace and power and, and help. And as, as we were thinking about this, we were struck by a passage that we came across in 1 John chapter 2. Um, there's a lot in that passage, that little letter that, that says that our love for God, how much we love God is kind of measured by how we treat others, uh, whether we love others well. And when we love each other well, John says, we're walking in the light. But he says when we're not loving each other well, we're kind of stuck in the dark. And then he sums it up in verse 6 with this line that just got me. It says, whoever claims to live in Jesus. So it means if you're here, you consider yourself to be a Christian. Whoever claims Christ as their Lord must live as Jesus did. And, and so we believe that, that following Jesus, that loving others by resolving conflict in, a, in a, a healthy and mature way is part of what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. So today we want to walk through five themes from Scripture, uh, especially from the life of Jesus, to help us grow towards reconciliation and healing and overcoming conflicts that come our way. First of all, remember those, uh, if you were here last week, the one and other statements that are plastered throughout the New Testament. And uh, a lot of them had to do with not just treating, not, not treating others poorly. It had about treating others positively, building one another up and, and encouraging one another. And it actually says to do that daily. And so a principle that we can draw on for our relationships is to express appreciation for one another on a regular basis. Because no relationship can, can survive really a lack of respect or, or a lack of kind of positive, affirming words spoken to each other. Uh, we had a big birthday for one of our friends and um, a few years ago, actually. There was 14 of us around the table, and we were, went around the table expressing how much we appreciated her. She had tears in her eyes. And I could sense she doesn't, she doesn't get to hear this very often. Uh, in fact, her birthday was just recently, and she referred to that particular birthday, how special it was. And she, in fact, remembered some of the words that we had said. It was like we put a big deposit in her bank account, her emotional bank account. When you have money in the bank account, you can withdraw it, right? You can make withdrawals. When you have conflict, you do make withdrawals. The key is not to be in overdraft in our relationships. For example, in, a, in our marriage, when we're in a place where we've been kind of proactively affirming and encouraging each other, mm -hmm. you know, when we've been very intentional about saying kind words to each other, um, conflict somehow seems easier to work through. It's still, it's, conflict still comes. Mm -hmm. e even that conflict that we had, that spectacular argument, we'd had all these positive affirming words beforehand, and it was interesting how quick the recovery time was after. Mm -hmm. We were able to, to, to actually go through it very, very quickly, and, and there's grace for it. But when, when we find ourselves kind of in overdraft relationally, uh, mostly I'm in overdraft relationally, uh, I think, uh, then it's more difficult to be gracious in conflict. So the first principle is simply in, encourage people regularly that you're close to. And, and, and you've got to maybe practice this and in, because we take the people we're closest to 
the most for granted, do we not? We uh, almost forget that they exist uh, and how great they are in our lives. As, as Mark Twain once said, he said, I can survive for two months on a sincere compliment. And so I'd, I'd like to dare you to take this principle out for a spin. Think right now of somebody that you care about. And why not even today find a way to say something kind to them? Uh, and, and not just compliment them on their clothes or some superficial thing. Talk about something that's rich and deep. And I want to practice this uh, right this moment. Oh, wow. Not in our notes, uh, not rehearsed. Uh, Angel, I just want to say uh, I really, really appreciate your joy and your laughter. And uh, this week, one of our next-door neighbors who heard us on our back patio, later I bumped into them at the, the coffee shop, and they said, we love your wife. Her laughter changes the entire climate of the neighborhood. I'm glad they didn't complain. <laughs> she needs to laugh a bit softer. <laughs> Sometimes Devin says that's the way he figures out where I am. If, I, if I'm in the mall or in a party, he can't see me because I'm short. And he said he could hear me laugh. And It's literally a global positioning system. <laughs> The next principle is identifying and accepting the differences in each other. Uh, when the Apostle Paul was describing how the church worked, he compared it to the body made up of different parts, right? Eyes, ears, your little pancreas, nobody sees, but it works and we need it. He instructs us to be careful to honor and respect each other's uniqueness. The truth is we are so different in all sorts of ways. In our relationships, it's good to recognize the differences, difference in how God has wired us. It could be your personality. Uh, it could be your temperament, your values, your love language, uh, your strengths, your weaknesses, our past, our family of origins. Um, it can be a, a real game changer when you know some of those things about each other. Uh, we did some of this at our leadership, our, our elders retreat this last January. Uh, we uh, did this survey together, some of you will be familiar with it, called Strength Finders. Anyone know that? Anyway, uh, you fill out this survey and it kind of identifies in your own life uh, sort of your top five strengths, uh, values that you hold and, and perspectives that you kind of operate out of. And, it was really eye-opening to do this as a team and to see that in some ways, some of us were very similar to one another, but in other ways, some of us were very, very different. And, and that, those differences can, can actually, in a team context, lead to some real clashes. In fact, it was really cool. Uh, this last, uh, just a couple months ago, two of our leaders were, were having a, a very significant difference of opinion on something, and they came to the conclusion that it was because of the way they were wired. They actually were able to diffuse this conflict that they had because of what we'd learned in this strength finder exercise. They were, they were able to respect each other's differences. Such a good thing. It's funny, uh, when our boys were little, uh, you know, if we went, for a, went to a party or if it's a church event, you know, I would look at 
other kids, and there would be kids who would be sitting there in a corner, coloring, painting, some of them sitting and reading. Uh, or even in church, right, they are quiet. And then I would look at my boys, and they were wrestling, they were bouncing off the walls. They would, in fact, when they were little, they would climb that tree, and somebody would come and say, some kids are climbing that tree, whose kids are those? I'd pretend they were not my kids. And, uh, Love and it when the pastor's kids are the worst kids in the church. <laughs> What's that all but about? Then, as a mother, I would struggle. I would say to the Lord, Lord, why didn't you give me kids like those kids? <laughs> they are behaving, you know, and they listen to their parents. And Lord, like, why didn't you give me kids like that? And it's funny, uh, over a time, I felt the Lord speak to me saying, um, I've given you two leaders, angel. You need to learn how to raise them. And I did. It was with lots of humility and asking lots of help from the Lord. And our oldest, Caleb, uh, Caleb and I clashed a lot when he was young. Um, I think here I was trying to make him like me, right? Uh, major sparks flying all the time because he challenged me on every, every corner. And then uh, in our church, we did uh, Myers-Briggs uh, uh, personality profile as a church, and he wanted to come. He was 12, and we are like, Caleb, you can't come. It's for adults. And he's like, no, no, I want to come. So he came, and when he came, uh, he did the personality test and found out he's ENFP, just like Derwin. And um, A wonderful personality profile, by the way. <laughs> just saying. One counselor said it's like living in two chaos my world is living in two chaos all the time. And, um, but he also gave notes on what ENFPs are like. And Caleb poured his heart into it, and he read about it. And he felt so free because he all of a sudden realized, this is how God made me. This is how God wired me. And here I... I I think I was trying to put a round peg into a square hole, and he wasn't fitting, and he was fighting, right? Um, then I had to learn how to train this ENFP kid and the way he should go. You know, in Proverbs, there's a scripture. It says, train up the child in the way he should go. In the real Hebrew, the word train up the child you know, we always think, oh, we just have to make them obedient, right? It's, it's like the wood grain in the wood. You know, those of you who do uh, hands-on projects, you know, when you sand the wood, wood, you have to go along the same wood grain. And that's what God is saying. Figure out how God made you or your child and go in the way they should go. And um, that has made such a big difference. And I'm so glad I didn't succeed in making Caleb like me. Because he was meant to be the way God made him to be. And he is a gift to this world the way God made him to be. 
And it's impacted our, our marriage, kind of recognizing our differences. Uh, with regards to money in our marriage, uh, how we handled money, early on, Angel and I realized we were coming from very different perspectives. Uh, we treated money very differently. I'm, I'm more debt averse. You know, I'm more naturally a saver. I'm not a compulsive shopper. In fact, Devin does probably 95% of the shopping in our house. But I do find it easier to spend money, much easier. It led to a lot of conflict early in our marriage. I always wanted to go out for dinner on Fridays or after church, and he always wanted to stay at home and save the money. Um, over time, we kind of came to realize that it's not that either of us was better with money than the other. We're just better at, at different things. Um, and, and we found we can actually complement each other with regards to our finances. I'm, I've become actually less cautious as a result of our marriage than I once was with money, and I use it more freely, and I think that's a good thing. And then as for spending, Angel's less spontaneous than she once was, and we talk through any big purchase together. And, and so our, our differences in this area have actually helped make us, I, I think, a more effective team that mm -hmm. treats money better. And, I, and I'd say just to those of you who are in a serious relationship, you're going to be married or you are married, this is one of the biggies. This is the one couples tend to fight about, right? Money's a big, big deal. And so I, I just would encourage you to, to talk about this area. It's important not to just let it be. And if it's causing conflict, to actually have conversations. Maybe how did you view money growing up? How, how have you treated money? How, what are your fears around money? How do you feel about money? And then work together, talk together about how you can work that out and, and, and also come up with a kind of a, a plan around money, everything from spending to giving to all those kind of things. So understanding and appreciating differences in relationships are huge in every area of your life. And there's lots of tools out there. Uh, one that some of them we have found useful as strength finders, like Devin mentioned, Myers-Briggs personality profile, Enneagram. Uh, so look for these tools. Uh, they are kind of help you to grow in understanding who you are and who the other person is. Just don't say, oh, that's the way they are, and just don't shut the conversation. Figure out who the other person is, how God has wired you and wired them and um, work those things through. One of the things I would really, really encourage you to do is invest in that. I know some of them require some money. Invest in them because it's a great investment. Uh, for us, we bumped into it with Caleb. It wasn't intentional, but it has immensely helped us. For sure. Well, before we move on, uh, we couldn't uh, let a relationship series go by without showing you one of our all-time favorite videos. Some of you have seen this, we've shown it before, but it shows the complexity of working things through in a relationship, specifically in a marriage. So let's watch the screen. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. 
You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. Was, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just don't try to see things my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can? Oh, I uh, love that video. Man, and again, it shows just how different we are, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, so uh, we've talked so far about building each other up, encouraging one another, especially the power of encouragement. And then we've talked about learning to identify and accept how different we are. And I think that's really huge. The next two approaches we're going to talk about uh, are going to raise, or we're going to raise, are intricately connected to one another. They're, they're really tied to the person of Jesus and kind of how he lived, how he, he loved others and how he addressed conflict. In, in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus was the son who came for the father he was full of grace and truth. He goes on to say, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then again, we have that verse that we, we read earlier from John in 1 John, which read, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This means as we seek to follow Jesus, we're going to be marked. We ought to be marked by those characteristics of grace and truth and how we relate. I love that line in John. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. How did Christ accept you? He accepted you just the way you are. No strings, no conditions. You didn't have to get better. You didn't have to clean your act together. Um, he accepts you just as you are. Uh, we have talked about this all through the summer, uh, the encounters with Jesus. Jesus radically welcomed and embraced broken people. Uh, as I spoke a couple of weeks ago, uh, as Jesus did with the leper, the Holy One, attaches himself to the unholy. Paul says uh, this. He says, accept other people the same way Jesus Christ accepted you. So, so grace is about accepting one another in spite of one another's flaws and brokenness. It's, it's loving another person when they're having a grumpy day. Parents, it's loving your child even when they make a decision that you don't like. And children, it's about loving your parents even when they make a decision that you don't like, right? We're meant to give one another this gift of grace. But it's not all about grace, is it? It has to be grace and truth. Uh, I want to tell you about one character in the Bible, uh, a dad who had a problem with speaking the truth. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a story about David, King David. He was one of the heroes of faith. He loved God and he served God. In fact, God called him 
a man after his own heart. Yet, with his sons, he refused to tell the truth. He refused to speak truth into their lives. Uh, Amnon, his oldest, did this awful thing. He raped his stepsister. And Absalom, his, the sister's brother, was waiting for the father to speak and punish Amnon, but David does nothing. Then Absalom uh, leads a rebellion against King David. King David, and uh, it's not like David didn't know what was going on, but he just refused to confront his kids about it. He didn't talk to them about it. Maybe David's idea of grace means being nice and never confronting anybody. Maybe he just wanted to avoid conflict. Some of us are like that, right? Maybe he just thought maybe if he stood on the sidelines, it'll all work itself out. But it didn't. It had devastating consequences in his family. Uh, because as the, the sons walked down this dangerously, dangerously destructive path. Let me ask you this morning, just, just rhetorical here. Why do you think we have problems with speaking the truth? You know, someone we love is kind of going down a wrong path, and we know it, and we're hugely tempted to stay silent about it. To, to, you know, why do we do that? You know, we might rationalize it. We might uh, want to keep the peace. We might not want to rock the boat. Uh, we don't want to hurt them. We may be hesitant with sharing the truth, but Jesus actually confronts us with this head on when he says, you shall know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. Truth has the power to challenge us and, and help us grow in, in ways we wouldn't otherwise. And so I, I think that's why it's scary. We have kind of these natural defenses against the truth. But because truth can leave you feeling exposed. It can leave you feeling vulnerable. And the reality is in, in any close relationship you're going to be in. And, and this is may, maybe why some of you avoid close relationships, to be honest, if I, if I can be that bold, is that in close relationships, you can't hide. You, you, can't, you can't keep out the truth. You, they leave us exposed. Your mask is gone, and, and people you're, you're close to will eventually meet the very real you, the very real you that you don't like if you're, you're deeply honest, that part of you that you're ashamed of, you're afraid somebody might actually meet that person. And so what kind of flaws will they eventually come across in you? Pastor Tim Keller, uh, he makes these suggestions. You may be a fearful person with a tendency towards anxiety. You may be a proud person with a tendency to be opinionated and, and selfish. You may be an inflexible person with a tendency to be demanding and sulky if you don't get your way. You may be an abrasive or harsh person who, who people tend to respect more than they love. You may be an undisciplined person with a tendency to be unreliable and disorganized. You may be a perfectionist with a tendency to be judgmental and, and critical of others. And also, if you're honest, pretty, pretty hard on yourself as well. You may be an impatient, irritable person with the tendency to hold grudges or to lose your temper too often. 
or you may be a highly independent person who does not like to be responsible for the needs of others. You may be a person who wants to be liked far too much. So you tend to shade the truth and you work very hard to please everyone. You know, whatever the flaws we may hold, it, it, other people see these in us, right? They really do. The people you work with, uh, they see them. Uh, the people we do life together and church together, we see them in each other. And uh, some, some, you know, a, roommate, a roommate, a friend might have actually confronted you with your flaws, but let's face it, it's kind of easy to just brush aside those opinions or write off those people. As, uh, as Winston Churchill famously said, he says, men occasionally stumble on the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. <laughs> and so, so being in a, a truth-telling, close relationship is, is this massively humbling experience. You find out things about yourself that you'd rather not know. And, and so with all that, it's challenging, but I'd also say this, it's the path to freedom. Counselors say that the only flaws that can enslave you are the ones you are blind to. If you are in denial about some feature of your character, that feature will control you. But the good news is close relationships, they blow the lid off. It shines a light on your who you are inside, and now there is hope. Finally, you can deal with the real you. I just wonder, have you given your family or a very close friend or a significant other in your life permission to talk to you about what is wrong with you? I know, ding, 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 alarm bells are going off and you're going to go, oh, no, 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 that's too... But pray about it. Have you given permission to someone to speak about what's wrong with you? I, I know from personal experience that truth about ourselves is hard to hear, but it's a, it's a tremendous gift to us. I, I've told some of you this before, but over the years, Angel and I have had repeated conversations about my tendency towards sarcasm, towards sarcastic comments. I actually feel like sarcasm sometimes flows like it's my mother tongue. Like, the first things I said when I came out of my mama's womb was something sarcastic. Uh, but in a family, especially in a marriage relationship and, and, and in a family context, I think in any context, sarcasm can be so hurtful and, and, and harmful, right? And, and Angel's been really open and honest with me about the hurt that it's caused her. Uh, I got to tell you, at first, I did not like hearing it. And I actually defended myself against it. I, I uh, defended that sarcasm was actually a bit of a virtue for many years, I think. But she didn't back down. She kept sharing it. And it actually got to the place where it led me to, to, to be open that maybe this is an issue in my life and I need to address it. And I've begun to change. In a healthy way, she hasn't let me get away with it. And, and because the thing is named, it's out in the open, it's acknowledged, there's kind of accountability about it right now. And I, I find that, that it has less power in my life. And here's the thing, in, in that area and in others, like for example, as I've, I've shared before, my, my selfishness, uh, my anger, and my overwork, I think she could have just clammed up. She could have just uh, you know, withdrawn. And I know she's been tempted to, 
to kind of give up on me or, or just walk away at times. But the, the loving thing to do is to confront me. And the result is that in those areas, over time, I've been growing and changing. The power of truth does its work if we'll let it. Now, of course, it's grace and truth. Ephesians 4, uh, 15 says, speak the truth in love. In families, uh, in marriage, we have incredible power in each other's lives. Power for good. Everyone in the world could say you are ugly. And your family says you are beautiful. You believe you are beautiful. And the reverse is also true. Everyone in the world could say you are beautiful, but the person you are closest to could say you are ugly, and you tend to believe that. Our words have lasting impact on our lives, uh, and it can be incredibly hurtful. Uh, you know, my mom, um, I don't think she intended, I remember wearing probably I was seven or eight, I was wearing this, uh, trying to put this dress on, and she said, you have large forearms, don't wear that. And you know what? That just went in and never came out. And I didn't wear sleeveless tops for almost all my life, and until like 10 years ago only I started. It just went in and never came out. Um, so there is this power uh, it has to be handled very carefully. If you only speak the truth, we will attack one another. We can shatter each other. We need truth combined with grace. And this uh, leads to our last point, which I, I think kind of fleshes out grace and truth in a powerful way. Because here the, here's the thing, um, we're never going to get this completely right. We're going to attempt to speak the truth, and we're going to do it in an unloving way, even though we're trying to speak it in a loving way. Or it's not going to be received well, and hurt's going to come out of that. And so, um, so Jesus teaches us, I, I think, in real helpful ways, how to, how to overcome this. He, he says in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, he says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Matthew 18, uh, Galatians 6, uh, in Matthew Five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount. If you have something against someone or, or someone has uh, something against you, they've sinned against you, you're, you're to go and discuss the matter and, and discuss the sin, to bring it up to, to that person. But, but Jesus, he's, he's first saying, is he saying, forgive the person and then confront them? Absolutely. The, re the reality is I, I kind of want to confront people who've wronged me as a way of kind of paying them back, you know, I, by telling them off. They've hurt me, and so it's tit for tat. It's, it's a matter of re revenge. You made me feel bad. I want to make you feel bad. But the confronted person, they can sense that when you're speaking what may be the truth to them, it's not in their interest. It's, it's in your own. You're saying that for, them, for, for your sake and not for their sake. And the fruit of that is not good. It's, it's bitterness or resentment or worse. So what is Jesus' solution? We forgive the person first in our hearts, and then we confront them. Without the power of forgiving grace, we will use truth to hurt. Truth can be a weapon. You know, folks, um, 
I say this with all the pastoral heart I can muster. That the tendency that we have to hold on to grudges or resentment or bitterness just sucks the life out of a relationship. And, and not to mention the damage it can do to our own hearts. Jesus reserved some of his hardest words for describing the consequences of, of not forgiving those who, who hurt us or offend us. Uh, a friend of mine has not forgiven her husband for f not being there for her during her miscarriage. Even after 16 years. And that unforgiving attitude seems to have a devastating impact on her marriage and on her family. And there's no question, don't get me wrong, her husband hurt her deeply and it's not something to be brushed aside. But as a friend, I've seen the hurt that she has held on to had hurt her and her family far more profoundly. Folks, we're, uh, we're seeking to, as we said, walk in the ways of Jesus. <laughs> that, that's really what it means to be a Christian, is to try to follow in his footsteps, to follow his tracks. And Jesus teaches us a better way. And he can say this with authority because he's the one who, who said to his executioners from the cross, Father, forgive them, for I know not what, therefore they know not what they do. And, and because Jesus loves us, he, he knows he knows how destructive the power of hate and bitterness is. He knows the only way to overcome it is to forgive. There's simply no other way. Forgiveness is hard. We are not saying that very flippantly. I, I remember one of my friends, uh, they hurt me very deeply, and I struggled with it for a while. I found it occupying my mind, my heart, uh, my emotional space, all the time. You know, in fact, I don't know whether that person even thought about me. They just carried on with their lives. But here I was, living this small, small life inside me with my hurt, my resentment, and it was eating me up. I think Jesus wants us to forgive so that we are freed, so that our unforgiveness does not hold us hostage. God wants us to live this large and free life, free from all these emotional baggage. Some of us tend to carry through all our lives, right? Whether it's parents, uh, our relatives, you know, we tend to carry it all through our life. Henry Nowen uh, said this uh, uh, quite a while ago, something I think that's incredibly relevant to, to our day, to followers of Jesus in our day. He said, in a world so torn apart by rivalry, anger, and hatred, we have the privileged vocation to be living signs of love that can bridge all divisions and heal all wounds. I like that image. Living signs of love. Bridge builders, we're, we're, man, we're living in a divided day, are we not? Stay, if you haven't been on social media, maybe you're missing it or watching the news, but um, we can be healers in relationships. That's the kingdom of Jesus. So what does it take to know this power of, of grace? Okay. 
uh, we have to experience this grace. You can't have a head knowledge. You, you can't read about it in the Bible and know Jesus forgives your sins. You have to experience it. You really have to experience it in your heart. And it's not just a one-time event. You have to keep on experiencing. Because I don't know about you, I sin every week, almost every day. You know, my attitudes, my thoughts. And uh, you have to go to Jesus and ask him to forgive you. You need to experience the guilt and the shame being lifted from you. Uh, Jesus says, it's, I think it's interesting, be my witnesses, he says. You can't be a witness of an accident or an earthquake or a music concert by just reading about it in the newspaper. You have to have experienced it if you are going to be a witness. And that's what I think we are meant to be. We have to experience this grace. Secondly, you have to choose to be humble. You have to choose humility. If you have trouble forgiving someone, uh, it's, it's at least partly because deep in your heart, you're saying, I'd never do something like that. Somehow, uh, somehow you, you believe I would never do what they do. Folks, as, as, as long as you feel superior to someone, as long as you feel like you're a much better kind of person, you'll find it hard or impossible to forgive. You know, if you look down upon someone who's wronged you, truth is going to eat up love. You'll only criticize and, and condemn. Uh, so like Jesus, we're called to clothe ourselves with humility. Humble yourselves, says the Lord, and he will lift you up. And the gospel transforms us. It really does. As Tim Keller says, we are so evil, sinful, and flawed that Jesus had to die for us. We are so lost, nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us. But, but, we are so loved and valued that he was willing to die for us. The Lord of the universe Loved us enough to do that. The gospel humbles us. The good news of Jesus humbles us to the dust. And it lifts us up to the heavens. We're sinners who are completely loved and accepted by Christ at the very same time. The, the Holy One attaches himself to the unholy. The Lord of the universe came down in the form of Jesus, looked into our hearts, and saw our worst. I know we want him to see the good, but he sees the worst as well. This was not just an abstract experiment for Jesus. Our sin put him to death, a death on the shameful cross. When he was up there looking down from the cross, he saw us, some of us denying him, some betraying him, and all forsaking him. He saw our sin and covered it. So uh, this morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table in just a few moments. The meal which Jesus shared with his followers uh, the night before he was betrayed, uh, the night he was betrayed, and the, the next day he'd go to the cross on our behalf, a table where Jesus would say, my body, my blood, given for you, poured out for you, for your sake, it's a, it's a table that reminds us of the lavish, unfathomable love 
and mercy of God. Before we come to the table, I, I, Angel and I both sense this, that we're going to give you an opportunity to consider. Is there someone in your life right now who you hold a debt against? If you were to examine your heart, you, you think, say maybe there's kind of a bitter root there um, or a resentment. Is there somebody who's hurt you or offended you? Someone towards whom you hold a grudge? And, and maybe this is easy, maybe you've known for some, some time, or maybe you need the Holy Spirit to put his finger on it for you. Uh, but, but this morning as we consider this table, how, how Jesus paid such a way so we might experience the forgiveness of God, this is such a wonderful ex- opportunity for us to, to actually offer that gift of forgiveness to others. And so I'm going to invite you, just we're going to have a time of prayer. So I'm going to encourage you to, if you bow your heads and close your eyes, this I think would be a a good opportunity for if there's if, if God's been putting his finger on a particular relationship that has been unwell or there's been a hurt that you've held on to you don't have to actually walk out with that this morning you don't have to carry that unforgiveness out, out of this room today you can actually forgive them right now with God's strength and his power so let just want to give you some quiet to consider that